oh hey didn't see you there i can never see you because this is a podcast welcome back to abstract i'm your host jeremy ullman it's a pleasure to be back here we've got a super special episode today recorded many many months ago but now ready for your listening pleasure so strap in for this episode of abstract and enjoy Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So, why might we want to prevent a CRISPR complex from editing our genes? And can turtles breathe out of their butts? How do snubs interrupt a ribonucleic threesome? And how do lava lamps produce their magically entrancing goopy light show? If gene editing is a play, who are the characters, and what sorts of hijinks do they get themselves into? And will wearing a hat speed up the balding process? Answers to these questions and many, 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 many more on this episode of, you guessed it, Abstract. Let's go. Ada McVean is a master student at McGill University. She was born in Orangeville, Ontario, where she met her partner of eight years, and stayed until 2014, when she moved to Montreal to do her Bachelor of Science with a double major in Bioorganic Chemistry and GSFS, Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies. In 2018, she did a research project in the Damha Lab, finishing her undergrad, and in 2019, started her graduate degree under the supervision of Dr. Masad Damha. Her current research is focused on creating small, modified, nucleic acid-based inhibitors, or SNUBs, of Cas9 using click chemistry. Since 2016, she's been working with the McGill Office for Science and Society, an organization with the motto, separating sense from nonsense. She writes articles on a huge variety of scientific topics, titled everything from turtles breathe out of their butt to can women ejaculate? That depends on whom you ask. When not in the lab, or writing, Ada volunteers with the McGill Chemistry Outreach Group, teaching science to the public, as well as with the Animal Rescue Network, the largest no-kill cat shelter in Montreal. In her vanishingly free time, she enjoys cooking, playing video games, and looking after her houseplants, as well as cleaning up after her 15-year-old gecko, Geico. Other notable 2020 events in Ada's life include, but are not limited to, having knee surgery in January, catching COVID-19 in March, a myriad of TV and radio interviews on masks and hand sanitizer, and appearing on a pilot show for the BBC called Science-ish. And today, to add to that long list of accolades and experience, we have Ada on Abstract. Woo! Ada, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Thanks so much for having me. It's good. I'm, I have high hopes for 2021. Don't know that it could really be worse than 2020. Exactly. Bar's been set extremely low. I'm also equally excited to see what this year holds for us. First thing, right off the bat, what have you not done in your life that you want to do and haven't actually done? <laughs> I've never left North America. Okay. So like I've never been to Europe or Asia or anything. Like I've never been on on like a transcontinental flight. I'm probably moving to the UK in September oh, um, wow. once my master's finished so that my partner can go to veterinary school there. So that's that's a big one. I've never traveled. All right. Is there a second thing? <laughs> I have dreams. I mean like you're it looks like I've done a lot when you write it down on paper like that. But I mean anyone's life looks busy when you write it down on paper. That's true. I have lots of dreams. I'd like to write a book one day. Yep. And I'd really love to write for National Geographic. I have non-writing goals as well. I've never had a pet cat or dog. So I'd, I'd love to 
get some non-cage pets. Sure. Yeah. You've definitely got the pet thing going here. Slightly less conventional pets, but that's totally fine. Okay, cool. No, it's just, I, I just had to ask because I feel like when I, I read out introductions of people with as much experience and background as you, there's got to be a catch, you know, like where, where haven't you been? You know what I mean? <laughs> if you're so like, I took a look, you've got, you got a lot of articles. You were writing articles like weekly, if not oh. daily for, for like last years, you know, years and years. So it's, yeah. uh, it's pr- pretty commendable stuff. And we're going to get to this at the end of the episode, but I'm going to be doing some rapid fire questions, asking you to kind of quickly summarize <laughs> some of the key points from those articles. We'll test your memory and, uh, Ooh, it's not going to look good when I forget them. <laughs> not a problem. Not a problem. Okay. So we got a pretty good idea of what your academic background looks like here. When did you know you wanted to do a master's degree? I almost kind of didn't. In a weird way, I've, I've done a lot of things in my life, but I always like to say I've kind of fallen um, butt backwards into mm-hmm. all of the things that I do because I, I didn't really know that I wanted to be a science writer. I, I knew that I enjoyed writing and I knew that I enjoyed science, but it never occurred to me to combine the two until I found the McGill office that I work for. And I didn't even really know I wanted to be in chemistry until I actually applied. I wanted to do biology and I didn't get in when I applied to McGill. They threw you a bone for um, for $200, the application fee at the time. You got to apply to a second place for free. Mm. So I applied to the second department, which was the physical sciences, which was chemistry. And then I got accepted to chemistry, but not biology. So decided I would come here for chemistry and then I can always transfer. Right. And then I started taking chemistry classes and I didn't want to transfer. Ooh. And I started taking biology classes and I absolutely hated them. Amazing. So I really kind of fell sideways into chemistry. And then it almost seemed just like a natural extension of it. Like I was I was almost done my undergraduate degree and I realized how much I enjoyed lab work. And so I was thinking, what can I do next? Well, it's only a couple years to get a master's. That's still quite a variable, you know, credential. I can apply that to a lot of different things. So it kind of just happened it seemed like the obvious choice at the time Mm -hmm. i'm curious to know if there was a person or even a single lecture that you attended when you first started your chemistry degree where you had this aha moment you thought yep this is it was there a topic was was there a sentence a word a gust of wind Mm, i don't memorize things very well i'm not a memorizing person i don't have an amazing memory which is what's going to make this segment at the end so fun (laughs) Biology is so much memorization. It's not to say that there's not memorization in chemistry. There is, of course, but a lot more of it felt intuitive and like I could understand the content and learn it that way as opposed to just memorizing 10,000 gene names. Yeah. So Bio 200 kind of convinced me I didn't want to do biology. Mm-hmm. And then Organic Chemistry 2, it just it felt fun. It felt like a puzzle. I really I like playing puzzle games like Minesweeper or mm-hmm. Sudoku. And it kind of felt the same way. Like they were saying, OK, here's your target molecule. Now, here's what you're going to start with. Now, show me what reactions to get from A to B. And I was like, oh, that's just a puzzle. You've made a puzzle game for me. Thank you. <laughs> that's great. I only took one level of organic chemistry, but I totally get what you're saying. There was this, this certain awe and this excitement about, or almost like a, a curiosity, like, hmm, how can I get there? And also, is there only one way that I can kind of propagate this reaction? Or can I maybe mm-hmm. come up with something creative? Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Okay, so that's a bit about your academic background. So master's degree, this is just something you're doing. Two years, you'll be done your master's, and then we don't have a PhD yet, but maybe moving this fall. So that's kind of cool. I've been in school since I was, what, five years old? Yeah. And I've taken one semester off in that entire time. So I think it's time to take a break, focus on some other things, maybe move to the UK for a bit. But I could yet do a master or a PhD. 
maybe one day. I could yet do a master's in a different field. For a long time, I was considering a master's in um, feminist studies, actually. Yeah. So I've, I've, I've really been bad at focusing my goals. I'm glad that you mentioned your feminist studies because I was curious to know how in your daily, weekly, yearly life, you actually kind of reconcile and bring together what you've learned in your two undergraduate majors. Is anything that you write about or, or work with on a regular basis actually kind of taking from both of those experiences? In a lot of ways, almost everything I write about is taking from those two experiences. Okay. Some of my favorite topics are both male and female reproductive strategies and content, and that you can't look at the history of how things like female ejaculation have been studied and not see the social justice aspects of it. I love, and by love, I mean, of course, it's heartbreaking to write about things like the Tuskegee study, where they left untreated in thousands and thousands of Black people syphilis just in order to, quote unquote, observe the natural progression of syphilis. Things like that, you can't, you can't look at the history of science and of medicine and of pretty much every field even vaguely related to science and not see how racism, sexism, bigotry, social justice studies, etc. are completely interwoven with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just reading a book called Blood by Lawrence Hill. Have you heard of this book? I haven't. I would recommend it. There, there is one section specifically talking about the, the evolution in the way that we do medicine, for example, mm -hmm. and how there are practices that we used to have that were just completely, uh, you would think almost against the law right now. Mm -hmm. And what it made, made me think of was, you know, what are, we, what are we doing right now that we think is okay? That maybe in 50 years, we're going to look back and think, wow, we were barbarians. Is there anything that you can recognize that we're doing now that you think is actually on its way out? That I can recognize? Mm, I don't want to make calls like that. That's a scary call to make and be wrong about. But I mean, there are kind of just general practices. I mean, like there's a there's a long history of the pain of women and of um, people of color not being taken seriously. Like how many how many instances of, you know, a woman goes into her doctor saying my my chest hurts and they say, oh, you're just stressed out, like take an anti-anxiety med. And then it's revealed that, no, she had a heart attack and you just missed a heart attack. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of cases like that. It's maybe not as obvious as leaving thousands and thousands of untreated syphilis cases just because the people were black but that almost makes it scarier it's very insidious it's kind of like it's woven into our system at this point where certain people get medical priorities when it necessarily doesn't make sense and I think that looking back there'll be a lot of things that we recognize as having been bad that we couldn't see at the time. What's uh, the saying? You know, you can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah. I feel like it's going to be a lot of that in retrospect. Okay, that's fair. I, I appreciate that you're not making any grandiose claims about what is and what is not and what will be. So I'll leave it at that. So in terms of your current research, you're working in a, in a lab with uh, Dr. Damha. And for those of you listeners who checked into episode 30, we had a discussion with James Thorpe, who's in the same lab, actually. So feel free to check out that discussion if you want to learn more about what Dr. Damha is doing with his graduate students. But you're working with CRISPR, right? And you're specifically working yes. with what you call nucleic acid-based inhibitors. There's definitely a lot to unpack here. So we're going to continually really refer to these things that you're focusing on as snubs. I think that's a snubs. fun little word, snubs. Right? I love that name. So let's, let's take a deep dive into what snubs really are. But before we do that, is there anything, any background knowledge we need before we can actually tackle this in an accessible way? So I feel like what's most important to know is that our body is programmed by DNA. 
So DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. That's very confusing. You don't need to know that term. But you do need to know that when you have like strings of DNA, we call them oligonucleotides. And I will call them oligos. And pretty much everyone calls them oligos. Mm -hmm. And it just means like a string of DNA, usually something that we've made and you've designed a very specific sequence. Oftentimes, especially in um, the DAMA lab, what we do are called chemically modified oligonucleotides. So instead of being the kind of typical ATCG that you would see in nature, they've been changed a little bit. They have like a fluorine atom added or the way that they bind has been changed. Um, and it's essentially, it's almost like if you picture trying to build something out of Lego and you can bring in this cool customized, like super strong Lego to have mm. different effects. That's almost like what our chemically modified nucleic acids are. And so you wouldn't actually find these chemically modified variants in the human body. This is stuff you can only create outside in your in your Petri dish or, or whatnot. Yep. So the one that Dr. Dama is most famous for, his Twitter handle is um, at Fanatico. And that is because he helped discover Fana, which is basically where the canonical kind of normal base would have an OH group, an oxygen and a hydrogen. It has a fluorine instead. And he helped develop this when he was doing his PhD. And now his lab works with it and we continue trying to put it to new applications. Why fluorine? And can I just build off of his research and say, oh, you know what? Instead of fluorine, I'll just put some uh, xenon in there or I'll put some, uh, some Einsteinium on there. That would be highly unstable. But, you know, what's stopping me from doing that? And what's so special about fluorine that makes it actually useful? So ironic that you gave the examples of Einsteinium, which would be way too unstable, and xenon, which would be way too stable. Okay. Because xenon's a noble gas, yeah. so it won't react at all. So that's not useful. So basically, why fluorine? Because if you can picture a periodic table, and you don't need to know it perfectly, but in that kind of top right-hand corner, that's where oxygen is, and that's where fluorine is. And there are trends in the periodic table based on where the different elements are situated with things like their electronegativity, which means it's kind of analogous to its reactivity. Mm -hmm. And so basically, because fluorine is very close to oxygen on the periodic table, it has very similar properties. And oxygen is what is in the normal base. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, it's kind of like a, taking a small step over, almost like substituting, um, you know, if you're making a cake that calls for apples, you don't have any apples, you throw in some applesauce. It's almost, sure. it's pretty similar, yeah. but not quite. You don't ever want to change anything to do with DNA too much, or our bodies won't recognize it, our enzymes won't work on it, it won't bind to where it's supposed to bind to and do what it's supposed to do. If you throw two crazy things into your body, your body just either freaks out or digests them. So you want something that's pretty close to what's naturally happening in there. And so fluorine is pretty close to oxygen, yeah. so we can use it in our bodies without our bodies absolutely flipping out. Okay. Can we just push this just for one second a little step further? What is right below fluorine on, on the periodic table and why might that work or not work in this same context? So chlorine is right below fluorine. I know that because I have a lovely periodic table right in front of my desk. So I don't know of any nucleic acids that use chlorine. Possibly it's too reactive. I could see that. I could also see it because chlorine, usually as Cl minus, so as the anion, the negatively charged chlorine particle, that's kind of floating around in our bodies a lot. It's used for um, sending nerve signals. So it's used a lot in your muscles, in your brain. So I could imagine it would interact poorly with those systems, whereas there's not really any um, fluorine anions, F minuses, floating around. Yeah, perfect. This is totally me guessing. So now I'm really hoping sure. I'm not wrong. That's but part of the this fun. Is an educated guess. Yeah, tick, thumbs up. Let's keep moving. <laughs> okay, so we've got the fauna. 
which is based on kind of replacing the OH group on our DNA with a fluorine. How is this now building towards a better understanding of what it is that snubs are and do? Yeah, I guess would also be part of the background knowledge. You need to know kind of what CRISPR is. So okay. CRISPR at its barest sense is a way to do DNA editing, to either add or remove or change parts of our DNA for therapeutic purposes. So for genetic diseases, for things like sickle cell anemia, where the only thing wrong in the DNA of somebody who has sickle cell anemia is just a few of those bases are wrong. So if we could go in and very precisely edit those bases in their DNA, it would be a relatively easy fix. We know what's wrong. We know how it should be. We just have to get there. Mm -hmm. And so that's the hope of CRISPR. Perfect. For more information on CRISPR, we've got episode 17B with Owen Dunkley. So feel free to check that out if you want a more in-depth analysis. I want to personally congratulate you for contributing either knowingly or unknowingly to the latest fundraiser by Abstract for the Society of Canadian Women in Science and Technology, SCWIST. I'll be donating 10 cents for every listen on an episode with a female guest and $1 for every review of the podcast on iTunes between now and April 8th. I'll be tallying and posting all over social media to let you guys know how much we've raised. I've also got people matching my donations, so we're talking four times that initial value. I'm going to put a link to SCWIST in the description so you can check them out yourself. Thank you so much. Moving forward. So DNA has kind of an analogous molecule called RNA, where it's instead of deoxyribonucleic acid, it's ribonucleic acid. So the only difference is a little OH group. And CRISPR works via RNA. So it has these different kinds of strands of RNA that tell the CRISPR where to go, depending on their sequence. Um, And then the CRISPR binds and it can do the editing. And so essentially by programming these little bits of kind of guiding RNA, we can hopefully program where the CRISPR is going to edit. And so I like to joke that all of the DNA chemists in the world who work with CRISPR are trying to make it work. They're trying to make this genetic editing possible. And I am trying to make it stop working because of course I am. This is not only my project. This is a project I inherited from a PhD student who finished. And we have collaborators at a few different universities who are really helping out. I am I am the smallest cog in mm-hmm. this giant machine of anti-CRISPR snubs. But essentially, these snubs would hopefully bind to those guiding bits of RNA and prevent CRISPR from editing. And that sounds maybe easier than it is, than it's turned out to be. But the reasons you would want that, there's a few reasons. One, because you don't want editing to go on forever. So if you did have like a CRISPR-based therapeutic, let's say you wanted to inject it or administer it, however, into somebody's eye, then you only want it to hang out editing until the editing's done. And then you want that CRISPR machinery to be kind of like deactivated or removed because if it hangs out, it could keep editing things it's not supposed to edit. The problem with CRISPR is that it's not very specific. Even if it's programmed to look for a very specific sequence of like ATCGs, there can be a few bases mismatched and it will still bind and edit. And that's what leads to these off-target effects that Mm. people, that's what you hear about in the news mostly because off-target effects have been in a lot of ways, the biggest barrier to getting CRISPR to actually work. Okay. And so you don't want to just leave this CRISPR machinery kind of in someone's tissue editing because it can have that mismatch. It would just hang out and keep editing other things and lead to problems. And so one potential idea is that you could administer these inhibitors of CRISPR and it would stop the editing once the editing is done. Mm-hmm. Another thing is it's just important is that there's almost no medication that's FDA or Health Canada or whatever country you live in their health agency's approval 
is that there has to be an antidote. There's almost no medications that don't have an antidote. And essentially, my molecules could work as a CRISPR antidote. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to imagine when that could be useful, but it is an important part of the approval process for different health agencies. And we used to have as well one hope where basically if, let's say you wanted to edit something in the brain, mm -hmm. you could administer the inhibitors elsewhere and they would inhibit the off-target effects elsewhere in the body, but not in the brain. Mm, okay. A lot of this is theoretical. To be honest, I'm still at the stage of doing these reactions in, or I'm not doing them, our collaborators are doing them in cells to see if that works. So we haven't even gotten to the live animals portion yeah. of this research, but this is the idea. Sure. So that's fine. Based on what you just described, I'm happy that this is not even remotely close to anything happening in humans because I wouldn't want to inject something into my eyeball and then have my ears turn into hands or whatever yeah. the CRISPR might do. I'm, I'm sure it's not that extreme, but you definitely do make a strong argument for snubs here. I think when you first said we want to find something that works counter to CRISPR, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. We created CRISPR for a specific <laughs> task. Now, why do you want to stop it? It's like, did CRISPR develop its own intelligence and now it's kind of going rogue? But apparently that's not the case. It's just that, like you said, it isn't really targeting as specifically as we'd like. And so we need to kind of pull in the reins a little bit. And that's where snubs mm -hmm. come in. Pretty much, yeah. What's the biggest barrier right now to having snubs do exactly what we want? What's the, what's the main thing between snubs being a perfect tool and snubs being what it is? Okay, yeah. My, my perspective, so essentially there's a few different types of kind of this guiding RNA that tell the CRISPR what to do. So there are three sites that you can kind of target for inhibition, and our collaborators develop molecules to target those three sites. And two of the three worked pretty well, but not well enough. And so where my research comes in is essentially we're trying to combine two of those sites so that it could target both simultaneously. And that would hopefully synergistically make the binding stronger. What kind of sites are we talking about here? So basically, there's different types of RNA that can guide the CRISPR. Yeah. There's one called tracker RNA. There's one called guide RNA. Yeah. And then there's this site on the DNA you actually want to edit. It's called the PAM. And it's essentially just this like pattern of nucleotides. It's um, NGG, where N is any nucleotide. So it's an AGG or a TGG or, or a CGG or a GGG. And you can target that, the NGG. Cool. So you can target these two different RNAs or you can target the DNA itself. And what's turning out to be really difficult is combining the two different inhibitor molecules into one inhibitor molecule that can then bind to two different inhibitor targets. And that, that's pretty much been my entire master so far. I'm having a bit of trouble visualizing this. Let us kind of try and paint a picture. Of course, we don't have visuals, right? But I'd, I'd like to try and paint a picture of what, if I were to zoom in on this section of DNA with my... Mm -hmm with my RNA as well, my, my CRISPR-Cas9 complex. Let's try and storyboard this, like we're trying to write a play. Okay. What is the symphony of, of movements? Act one, what's going on? So, basically, act one. It's called CRISPR-Cas9, but the CRISPR just refers to this, like, pattern of things that happen in our DNA. Cas9 is the real superstar. Okay. Cas9 is the enzyme that actually cuts the DNA and does what we're trying to do. And so Cas9 has these two different guide strands of RNA. So there's one called the CR RNA, and the CR RNA, it binds to the DNA that you want to edit. Once it is bound, 
and it binds next to that PAM thing that I talked about, but that just guides where it's going to bind on the DNA. So once the CRRNA binds, then this other guide RNA called tracker or tracer, depending who you are, but I call it tracker, tracker can then bind to the CRRNA. Once that happens, everything kicks off. The Cas9 starts recruiting all these different enzymes and the actual cutting and editing process begins. But so because you have these two different guide RNAs that have to bind to the DNA, and they have to bind specifically right by this PAM domain that's on the DNA, mm -hmm. those are your three different targets. You can inhibit one of those guide RNAs or the other one, or you can try to inhibit that PAM sequence, which is what guides the whole thing. So the three pieces here. In Act 1, we got three main characters. The two guide RNAs who are kind of locked onto each other, mutually attached. As well as to the DNA, yeah. Right at the location of this PAM site. So you've got just this kind of like triple linkage here. PAM, guide, guide, in a threesome. Yep, pretty much. And so my hope is that my molecules would either bind to that PAM or bind to either of those guide RNAs and stop that kind of three-part assembly from happening. Aha. Uh -huh. The three-part assembly is the, is the first step of preparing to slice and dice the gene. Yes. So if you can make sure that you don't get this threesome of interwoven guides and PAM, then you can stop the whole process from happening. Exactly. So th this is this is a single act play. <laughs> yes. I was I was going to let you go with your metaphor, but you said act one. I was like, there's really only one there's act, only... <laughs> but I'll let him go with it. Act two is just everybody bows <laughs> and uh, then snubs just kind of celebrate. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> gets married. Act two is Ada gets her diploma and can graduate. Awesome. That's a great act. That one's going to be over before mm -hmm. you know it. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Every time I get into a discussion about CRISPR with somebody, which this is, this is, I think, maybe the third or fourth time this happened on the podcast, it's always still somewhat troubling for me. And so, hey, listeners, we're in this together. Okay? It's all right. Honestly, it's, it's still really confusing for me, too. So. Perfect. Thank you for your honesty. And hey, look, you know what? This is, this is why I didn't get into chemistry and biology. Because <laughs> when it comes to stuff happening on the molecular level, I mean, it's fascinating. But it's it's honestly beyond me. It's so complex. I was always more of a physics guy. I like the large structure, you know. Back in high school, I wanted to be an astrophysics professor, you know. Oh, man. Studying, like, the largest structures in the universe. That's what I, I was like, you know what? As long as it's extremely large and it can be observed on a macroscopic level, I think I'll do just fine. I didn't end up following that path, though. So here we are. <laughs> you never know where life's going to lead you. Yeah. I got snubbed. No, man. So bad. So, I love bad. It. so bad. Okay. I think I'm ready to do our rapid fire round of let's see how much Ada remembers and can tell us about the various articles that she's written, of which there are, I think, well over a hundred. Most of my writing is for the McGill OSS, but there's always like a little bit in like magazines and websites and stuff. So if I go to my website, I think I can mm -hmm. tell you exactly how many I've written, assuming I didn't miss any. It looks like there are 205 on my website. So at least 205. I'd probably go closer to 300. Excellent. So that's like one every few days for like the last three years. Okay. So here's how this is going to go. I'm going to read out the title of your article. And then you will please summarize either the, the main takeaway or the coolest fact about that. So some of them, the titles are okay. actually questions and others, they're just mm. statements. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Fingers crossed. Yeah. So the first one, the first two are going to be the ones that you mentioned in your introduction. So number one, 
turtles breathe out of their butt? Fact. That's a fact. Fun fact, that article got a huge boost in views after Frozen 2 came out. Apparently, this little, like, snowman dude is at some point listing fun facts to annoy people, which is basically what I do. And he lists that turtles breathe out their butts. So when you Google turtles breathe out their butt, my article is the top response. So I don't know whether that came before or after Frozen. Like, did a writer for Frozen 2 read my article and decide to integrate it? Or did everybody start going to that article after the movie? Could be either one. That's the crazy. main point, though. The main point, though, is that turtles have cloacas and they can do cloacal respiration, which means they diffuse in oxygen and out carbon dioxide through their cloacas. And they do it mostly in the winter when they hibernate because they often kind of just hang out underwater um, and their rivers and ponds and lakes and such will kind of freeze over. And over time, the water gets oxygen poor because there's a whole bunch of turtles doing the same thing, using up all the oxygen in that pond they can kind of go into this like shut down hibernation mode where they just float and their cloacas just do the gas exchange for them so that they don't have to waste energy breathing. I feel like my cloaca does gas exchange on a regular basis, <laughs> even if I'm not under a frozen sheet of ice. Moving oh, forward, dude. do females ejaculate? Yes, female humans, yes. Mm -hmm. We have overwhelming evidence that they do. However, the scientific path to admitting that and not all prominent places where that should be admitted have admitted it but the path to admitting it has been fraught with sexism and terrible science just terrible like people pulling 10 women off the street and like putting them in clinical settings with a vibrator with usually hooked up to a billion different machines and saying okay masturbate orgasm you didn't ejaculate we we got 10 women to do that none of them ejaculated therefore women in general do not ejaculate mm -hmm. Like, sampling bias, so much sampling bias, like, you could at least get people to pre-report whether or not they ejaculate and then bring them in for that experiment, but no. But there is, there's a lot of evidence that women basically can ejaculate, yeah. not all women do, yeah. and not all women can. There is right. an organ called the female prostate, it comes from the same tissue as the male prostate, um, developmentally speaking. And in some women, it's a lot more developed than in others. And so that kind of development seems to have a lot to do with whether or not it can produce a fluid that can then be expelled or ejaculated. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. Okay, the luminescent chemistry of lava lamps. <gasps> yes, lava lamps are really cool. So lava lamps, basically, I forget exactly what the um, gel is made of. That I would have to read the article to remember. But essentially, it gets warmed up, which causes it to go up. Because when you change the temperature, you change the densities of there's like this like solid goopy stuff at the bottom. And then there's liquid in mm -hmm. the lava lamp. You change the density so that the little balls of the goopy stuff can float up to the top. And then they float up to the top where it's colder because the incandescent light bulbs at the bottom. And then they float back down and then it repeats forever. That's amazing. I never thought about it as a cooling at the top. I just yeah. kind of figured what goes up must come down, but that's that's me letting down that's me letting down all of my physics professors. <laughs> I apologize. Okay, very cool. Yeah, lava lamps are just visually mesmerizing. If only there was like an auditory version of lava lamps. What would the auditory version of lava lamps be like? I feel like it's kind of like the Doppler effect, like when a when when you hear like a, a police car go by and then the pitch changes when it's heading towards you and then it drops when it's heading away from you. But that just doesn't happen repeatedly. If, if we could somehow have that happen repeatedly, that would be excellent. If you're like watching like a NASCAR race, isn't that kind of what's happening as they all go past you? Sure. 
Sure, but it doesn't happen in the reverse direction, right? Whereas lava lamps, Fair. you go up, you come down. You don't hear, you. That would be really cool, right? <laughs> Everyone's just like, no, nope, back, up, back up, back up, back up, back up. 100 cars going 300 kilometers an hour backwards. That would be that would be a NASCAR that I'd pay to see. NASCAR backwards. I had two lava lamps growing up. And the reason I had two is because they both got melted. Apparently, if you leave that little like incandescent light bulb on in its plastic base for long enough, it will just melt the base. And I know because I did it twice. So like you don't want to leave your lava lamp on overnight. That's today's public, what's the term? Public Public service announcement. Public service announcement. Yes. Okay, next up. Will wearing a hat make me go bald? No, but if you're already going bald, it could speed up the process. Ooh, that is not fair for balding people. Oh man, that's just like, that's just a sick game. It is, right? And like... The less hair you have, the more likely you are to either want to wear a hat and cover it up or like be like brushing it and styling it, trying to like get it to lay a certain way. But that's only going to speed the increase that you lose your hair the more you mess with it and touch it, basically. If I individually plucked all the hairs out of my head, uh, like, would I be bald? I mean, yes, you would be bald. It would grow back. It would grow but back. you would still be bald for well, a while. For a little bit. But like... <laughs> Because you're saying, let's say I'm combing my hair. I'm presumably yanking some of those hairs out. That clearly doesn't mean, based on your answer, that I'm never going to have hairs grow out of those follicles again. So why is it a problem that I'm combing my hair? So basically, your hair follicles, they can be physically damaged. So like, if you get like a big cut across your head, you will physically damage the hair follicles so that they can't grow hairs properly. But there's also this, um, it's called follicular miniarization syndrome. And it basically seems to be like this weird chain effect where if you have testosterone and all people have testosterone, male and female. So testosterone and its um, like molecules can kind of influence your hair follicles and make them kind of miniaturize, it's called. And those mini hair follicles, the hairs, they grow shorter, they grow thinner, and they grow a lot less strong. So they break off really easily. And essentially once a follicle has become miniaturized it will only grow these crappy mini hairs and if you have a head full of miniaturized follicles and are brushing your hair and everything you're going to yank those hairs out all the time so it's not that they won't grow back they will grow back but they'll only grow back still miniature and still slowly and unhealthily thin not long and so basically if you've already got this miniaturization effect going on you want to mess with your hair as little as possible because you're going to like yank it out and harm it further. Yeah, excellent. Beautifully said. You're probably storing leftovers wrong, especially if it's rice. Tell me, what am I doing wrong? Oh, this one was terrifying for me because I live on leftovers. So a fridge is about four degrees Celsius. Sorry for all the Americans listening. And food, when you cook it, you know, it can be anywhere from like 50 to 100 degrees, maybe even higher if it just came out of the oven. And you're essentially supposed to take food like off the stove, cool it as rapidly as possible, like put it into the fridge to cool it down, cool it down to four degrees, and then it can stay there. But we don't do that, right? I make dinner, then I serve dinner, then I leave dinner on the stove, go and eat my dinner, come back and deal with the leftovers then. And in that time, the temperature of the food has fallen into the perfect zone for bacteria. Because when food's cooking, it's too hot for the bacteria and Uh the other nasties to grow. And when it's in the fridge, it's too cold. But in that in-between is where the bacteria and stuff grows. And this is especially an issue with rice, because people will leave rice for like days and days and days at a time. And the kind of starchiness of it, this is an issue with pasta, um, with other things as well, 
really just encourages the bacteria to grow. So with any starchy foods, potatoes, rice, pasta, it's really better to not keep them left over at all. I wrote the article and I still eat leftover rice all the time. So like do as I say, not as I do. But in general, what you want to do is cool food as quickly as possible to about four degrees or to frozen if you're freezing it and then leave it there until it's the next time you want to eat it. And then you heat it all the way back up. But what you don't want to do is have lukewarm food. That's just that's bacteria central. Yeah. I'm just thinking about what I did last night, which was exactly what I'm not supposed to be doing. Oh, God. Yep. I knew I knew I wasn't perfect. I just didn't know when I'd finally figure it out, you know. (laughs) So final question for you. You can interpret this uh, in, related to your academics, but generally I'd encourage thinking of this in more of a large, grand picture. You're standing at the foot of a massive auditorium that seats a thousand people. It is packed to the brim. What do you tell them? Hmm. Well, my go-to fun animal fact for a long time has been that wombats poop in cubes. So that would I'd probably break the ice with that at least. You know, little cube poops and wombats are pretty cute. And then, oh, it's maybe a bit more serious than you were looking for, but I would probably talk about inequality in general, inequality in academia, inequality in, when we say inequality in academia, I feel like most of the time we're thinking of in graduate school or higher, but I want to talk about even lower than that. I want to talk about primary school, high school, undergraduates, how the whole selection process is kind of inherently biased to select for certain types of people. And that really sucks because by selecting for certain types of people, we are inherently prohibiting certain types of people from entering the scientific spaces, at least entering them easily. And I traditionally was not the kind of person that would have been encouraged to go into science. So it's almost like I have a moral imperative Mm -hmm. now that I'm in science to say, hey, this was really hard for me. Can you make it easier for the other people, please? Excellent. Thank you for that. I love hearing everyone's unique perspective. Thank you for sharing me your unique perspective. Thank you for dispensing your knowledge and all of these lovely different topics. This has been excellent. Fascinating discussion. Listeners, thank you for tuning in for another episode of Abstract. Ada, this was great. Have a great afternoon. Thanks so much again for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So... Feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy. Hey, you made it to the end of the episode. You're my people. Thank you so much for listening. Okay, so March 8th was International Women's Day. And personally, I don't think one day is enough to be able to celebrate women in STEM. So, Abstract, like I mentioned earlier during the break, has a fundraiser going on right now until the end of the day on April 8th. If you know anybody who hasn't yet heard of this podcast and who might be interested in listening to some of the 40-odd conversations we've had on the future of science, let them know because they can donate just by virtue of listening. What a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for helping me make just a small difference in the world. 
through this podcast.